Amen. When we start following Christ, we don't automatically start thinking correctly about all the practical matters of life. And even though I say that out loud, that's not surprising to you. We can think on that claim for a moment and realize, well, absolutely, that's true. It's not as if upon conversion, all the practical areas of my Christian life would now come into clear focus and all the wisdom I needed become like some kind of uh, inducement into our hearts and minds. Instead, we need biblical instruction to grow. We need the patience of the holy God who loves us and Redeemer who has us in union with Him. And we need the gospel truth powerfully by the Spirit of God at work within us to show us the light of truth, the path of righteousness, and the folly of worldliness. We need wisdom to think about all manner of life, and the book of Proverbs wants to pull everything in the practical areas of life into the light. It doesn't want to leave anything to say, well, let's just conceal this, and let's just leave that in the darkness. We won't worry about that over there. You start reading through Proverbs, the writer's pulling out all these subjects and saying, let's shine Christ on this. Let's put the light of the gospel on this. What do we see now? And one of the subjects that we need to think wisely about and bring the light of Christ upon, one of the practical areas that Proverbs addresses multiple times, is the subject of possessions and money and stewardship and what our hearts crave, what our hearts most desire to serve and give ourselves to. There are different views about money in the culture. Out of line with the Bible's teaching, we should think about a few of them. In order to think rightly about the Bible's view of money, we have to dispel the oft-proclaimed prosperity gospel, which says that God's will for you is that you be abundantly, lavishly rich. And that if you have enough faith, you can name and claim what will prove to be a prosperous, fruitful future for your wallet, for your bank account. Well, we don't get that kind of message from sound teaching in Scripture. We get that from a number of passages taken out of context and passages twisted and proclaimed. We have to say a large no to this prosperity gospel. But on the other end of the spectrum, Christianity is not anti-possession. It is not anti-money. Think of the Eighth Commandment, which says you shall not steal, implying that respect... And proper stewardship belongs to the possessions and money that we have. And that to violate with disrespect and thievery what belongs to someone else is wrong. Because there is a real sense of possession and ownership and stewardship that we are called to. And thievery is irresponsible. It is not loving toward neighbor. It is sin toward God. Christianity is not anti-possession or anti-money. We use money in the world God has made. We use money to advance with resources and efforts the ministries of the church and beyond for the cause of the kingdom. Christianity is not anti-money or possession at all. In fact, we find that one of the other areas we could easily uh, twist and contort in the subject of money and possessions is that we should apply ourselves fully and nonstop to gaining all the money that we can. Working, working like crazy, doing nothing but work. 
Well, work matters, but from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and other wisdom literature, you find that work matters, but it can't be all you do. Earning money matters and is important, but the goal is different from what might be a more popular American way of looking at things in the West. Why don't you just get as much as you can, as quick as you can, for as long as you can? And that's not the message of Scripture to us. In fact, the Bible in Jesus' own words in Matthew 6.24 says, You cannot serve both God and money. Which ought to provoke our hearts to ask this question, what is it that my heart serves? What is it that I see as most valuable and deserving of my honor and worship and priority? You work for and serve what you value. And in terms of ultimacy, Jesus says you cannot ultimately serve two things. You can ultimately serve and give your heart's affections toward making this your God, God, the living God, or money. The greatest commandment, Jesus says, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love neighbor. He didn't say, love God, love money. Don't love money. I didn't say don't have money, don't work for money, don't steward money, don't invest, don't say. I didn't say any of that. Don't love money. That verb matters and we are warned not to love money actually in 1 Timothy 6. Earthly treasure fades and corrodes. You cannot serve both God and money. You should serve what is eternally relevant. And that's the living God. You should not serve The money treasures of this world because those earthly possessions don't last. Why would you give your life to what corrodes? Oh, if we could only see a glimpse, a million years to see the state of our possessions and money and all the things that people vie for and give all that they have for to acquire. Oh, we would see them in their pity corroded state. Don't love money. We need these realities clear in our minds. And in these five verses, we want to think sober-mindedly about how to live as disciples in a world where there are various pitfalls to entrap you all over the place. In these five verses, I'm going to present these wisdom statements with five summary or pithy statements that try to get at the essence of what each of these five verses is communicating. And in verse 7... The first truth about all of this is that appearances can be deceiving. Appearances can be deceiving. This summarizes verse 7. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. Appearances can be deceiving. It is the case that in this life, people can pretend to have and to be what they're actually not. They can give off through some sort of uh, outward appearance or effort what can lead someone on the outside to draw a conclusion that actually isn't reflected by the true state of things. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. And And a question we should ask is, why would someone do that? Well, people do what they do, any particular pretension that they put on, all of this is done for some sort of reason that they see as justifying such pretentiousness. 
So if one pretends to be rich, why might somebody do that? And even though the proverb does not speak to it here, we can see the pitfalls in James chapter 2 and in James chapter 5 and in other wisdom statements in the Old Testament that lead us to the following conclusions. Seeking the approval and worldly embrace of others leads us to put on appearances for the sake of being accepted. One pretends to be rich. The reason somebody would do that is because of what they believe they can gain if they can convince people that there's something that they're not. And maybe what's lying behind those kinds of pretensions can be, well, I think those people are successful and important, and I want them to think I'm successful and important. So I'm going to leave, leave this kind of impression. I'm going to pretend to be rich, though I have nothing, because their approval or acceptance or evaluation, that's everything to me. Because if I want their approval and I don't have it, I'm just miserable. One of the most famous examples from the 2010s was a story of Anna Sorokin in 2013 to 2017, who pretended to be a wealthy German heiress named Anna Delvey and worked her way up in various social circles, fooling some of the brightest and elitist of the circles she was trying to penetrate and for years was able to maintain a cover lie upon lie, pretending to be something. Now, not all examples are as extreme as her con was. But nonetheless, one pretending to be rich while actually having nothing is a pretension committed for a reason. What lies behind that? Some sort of draw or allure of worldliness that drives trying to show something to convince others to make oneself feel affirmed and accepted. In other words, the idea might be, since I think they're important... I will feel important if they think I am. Since I think they're successful, I will feel successful if they think I am. So it's their approval or evaluating word that drives that kind of pretension. But there's a a contrast here, isn't it? Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. Now, why might somebody do this? Well, I think biblically we could answer with the Old and the New Testament that stewardship and ownership of possessions leads to various responsibilities under God, namely faithful stewardship, generosity and blessing that can be avoided if you can convince others you don't have the means or capacity to do so. There may be an advantage in a worldly sense to possessing great wealth and not communicating that at all. Nobody might expect anything of you. Nobody might, not, nobody might depend on you for any sort of generosity or come to you to be blessed or helped. Each case here in the verse is a denial of the reality. It is to pretend. He is not saying, I think... What could easily be misunderstood here? I don't think he's saying, oh, if you have great wealth, flaunt and show it. No, I don't think that that's not an imperative here. But he is pointing to something about how human behavior can be. Someone might find it personally in their best interest, they think, to pretend to be a certain way. That the wealthy would pretend to be poor and that the poor would pretend to be wealthy for some sort of reason. And in the book of Proverbs... Living dishonestly 
Living without integrity, living with pretension, is not commended, but rather warned against. So I don't think this is merely an observation about life, though it is an observation about life. People pretend to be things that they're not. But it is, in fact, a a warning within the observation. Don't pretend to be something you're not. Don't live in relationships with others with a relationship cloaked by pretensions because you feel it's in your personal gain and interest to act such a way. One writer named Charles Bridges says in his book on Proverbs, both persons here practice deceit. One by pretending to have received and the other virtually denying God's gracious gifts. But both, both the poor and the rich, can act with pretension, can act with deception. So I think he's saying, well, whether you're poor or whether you're rich, don't live deceptively and pretentiously in your relationships. Verse 8, here is how we can summarize verse 8. Not only can appearances be deceiving, wealth can increase threats. Wealth can increase threats. Verse 8 says the ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. You know, they make movies about this kind of plot, okay? The ransom of a man's life is as well. Somebody's taken because they want to negotiate or demand some kind of ransom in order to exchange that life or that possession, that bag of money. Drop the bag at this location and you'll go to this place and find the person we took. The ransom of a man's life is as well. But a poor man hears no threat. Maybe an idea in the minds of sinners regarding possessions is, listen, my life would be so much easier if I just had a lot of money. The book of Proverbs is filled with more sober-minded statements to say, that's not exactly true. The rich don't necessarily have fewer problems, they have different problems. And if you are what he calls here a poor man... You might not be on the radar of someone who's trying to hatch a kidnapping plot in order to gain a lot of money because they might view you as not having a lot of money to offer for such a life. But the rich, they might be a target, a target for cons and exploitation, a a target for manipulation and thievery. The ransom of a man's life. Now, it might not get to the point where the actual physical life is necessarily in jeopardy. But the idea of saying, well, you know what would give me fewer problems in life is if I was just rich. The book of Proverbs wants you to pause and think for a second about your relationship to possessions in a fallen world. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth. Now, the poor man might say, "Um, well, I have these problems over here. I have this going on and I wish this were different. And yet at the same time, everybody's station in life doesn't bring the same risks. The poor man hears no threat. And this is a principle, okay? So there may be plenty of examples in life where someone says, well, I read a headline once where this particular person had this horrible experience and it was because of their money and they weren't even wealthy. The the book of Proverbs is giving us ways of thinking about how what what normally happens in life And the poor man is not on the radar as a target as much as a rich person would be. So while the poor man has problems, he doesn't have the same kinds of problems that others in different stations in life would. Verse 8, 7 and 8 really, are a reminder 
that there's no station in life, no financial status where you are immune from the woes and trials of living in a fallen world. There's no kind of security that battens up all the hatches and that steals you in where you can live an impenetrable life in that sense. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth. And yes, it quite means someone whose life is on the line unless this amount is paid. Well, in that case, his riches, which made him a target, turn out to be the very thing that will get him back. And you might say, well, good, it's a good thing he was rich. Well, the poor man didn't hear any threat. So in other words, it's, it's not so clear cut that it's always better in one case versus the other. There are disadvantages and advantages. In verse 9 here gives us a third principle. And this at first might not seem like it relates to possessions and money, like verses 7 and 8 do. But because our last verse this morning in verse 11 that we'll see in a moment, because that deals with possessions as well, our, our passage opens and ends today with comments on worldly possessions and accumulation. This statement then in verse 9 should be seen in light of that. The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. The righteous should be thought of as the righteous who have much or who have little. The point is not their riches, but their righteousness. The light of the righteous rejoices. But the lamp of the wicked. Who? The the poor who are wicked or the rich who are wicked? The wicked. No matter what's in their wallet. No matter what's in their bank account. There is a, a lifting out now from the financial status and a piercing onto the spiritual realm of things right through all the worldly fog and saying at at the heart righteousness wickedness that binary way of thinking in proverbs introduced here again the light of the righteous rejoices is it odd to think of light rejoicing Maybe you would have thought it would said, uh, have said the light of the righteous shines. And some translations, translations will say shines brightly. The verb quite literally is rejoices here in the ESV. The light of the righteous rejoices does pick up on this idea of what you would expect light to do that's vibrant and helpful and illuminating. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. I think our imaginations are brought to like a, you know, a one-room home in the ancient world where people are lighting up their entire living space with a lamp. You needed a lamp because you couldn't just you know, make sure the power was working and all the wires were connected and flip on the light. There was none of that in the ancient world. And so you were relying on light, if not from your windows, from a lamp. And if you had light, that lit up everything else. It created a lively and vibrant Atmosphere, whereas putting out the lamp would make everything more difficult. Unless, of course, you're trying to sleep. The lamp of the wicked will be put out, and I think the implication is put out by God. The light of the righteous rejoices. The lamp of the wicked, what does light and lamp refer to? I don't think we're meant to press strongly between these two as if they're completely different metaphors. I think both the light and the lamp here represent the life of the individual the life the life of the individual and not just their physical well-being but the things connected to their life how they're thriving and flourishing how they're being faithful stewards and how they are investing how they are connected in relationships it's it's a way of speaking about their life 
more than just what's their medical condition. The light of the righteous rejoices. And I don't think the rejoicing is connected proportionally to the number of things they have or the amount of money they possess. They are the righteous. They know God. They fear God. They walk wisely. So with little or with much, their heart is for the Lord. Their joy is not wrapped up in all of the worldly things. They don't serve money. They serve God. That's why they're called the righteous. And the light of the righteous, the life of the righteous, there is a thriving and flourishing in the knowledge of God that is to be counted on. Rejoicing here, who would not want that? It's it's to contrast with what would be undesirable, a lamp that is put out. I mean, if you're, have you ever been in the middle of something in your kitchen and the power goes out and you think, well, how am I going to finish this meal? Or we were in the middle of this game or I was watching this show and all of a sudden you realize how dependent you were that things were passing through those wires. And, and when the lamp is put out, it can put you in the most undesirable situation. The lamp here represents the wicked. The life of the wicked that are not flourishing in the knowledge of God, not a heart that pursues to know God. The life of the wicked live for wickedness. They love self. They don't love neighbor. They don't love the Lord. They're not seeking to glorify God. They're not living in reverence for God. Their end is swift. Will be put out. That sounds like looking at a a wick that's got a fire burning on it. And you go and you just snuff it out immediately. It's a warning. This is not again just an observation. It's an observation with a warning. Think of Moses' words to the Israelites. I set before you this day life and death. Choose life. I set before you life and day the light of the wicked that rejoices or the lamp of the wicked that is put out. So be wise. Fear the Lord. Because these indeed are the paths of sinners. The lamp of the wicked will be put out by God is a warning to those who would love riches and not righteousness. Those who would serve money and not fear the Lord. The book of James is very much like the New Testament book of Proverbs. Uh, the book of James, this t- small letter says in chapter 111, The sun rises with scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and beauty perishes and so will the rich man fade away. You know, it was a hot week last week, wasn't it? I don't know if you tried to do any yard work last week. I wouldn't have recommended it unless it was just the perfect time of the day. Yesterday was great. But, you know, when it's 100 degrees with all that humidity outside, you, you can realize the toll that that begins to take on you physically. And if you're looking around at the stuff that you're planting and the vibrancy of a yard, you go enough days without rain with that kind of heat, you're going to see exactly what James 1.11 is talking about. And if you have the occasion in the days ahead to look around in your yard and see withering grass and fading flowers, you should think to yourself, all the riches of my life are going to be like this. Just like we should consider the ant, Proverbs 6 tells us to learn things about working with integrity and faithfulness and not being a sluggard. So also we should look at the fading, corrupting, passing away things of yards and plants and say, why would I then live for riches if this is their future? And the lamp of the wicked will be put out. Oh, what a warning to us if we love riches but not righteousness. Jesus says in Luke 6.24, Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. 
Now, it seems like a strong word. Is Jesus saying no rich will go to the kingdom of God? No, that's not what he's saying. He is warning about a principled idea and category of the rich in the ancient world. They were notorious for exploiting the poor. They were known for being untrustworthy. They would deceive and manipulate. They would defraud their workers. James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6 addresses this. So if these... Look at neighbor as a means to their own personal financial increase despite calls to love and do justice. But instead of doing justice, they defraud and act with manipulation. Jesus is saying, woe to you, you rich. Which might have surprised the rich. They might have thought of themselves as lives with very few woes. Or at least fewer woes than the people who didn't have what they had. But Jesus can pronounce with total confidence and prophecy, woe of judgment upon the rich, for he is the judge. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Oh, friends, what would it profit a man? What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lost his soul? Jesus asks that profound question so that we will recognize my riches will fade and all the rich will die. I need to love the Lord and pursue righteousness. The light of the righteous rejoices. That's what characterizes their life. They fear the Lord. It's not because their life is easy. It's because in Christ their light shines. And there is joy in Christ. There is peace with God. There is forgiveness of sin. And though they die, they have resurrection glory as their future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. So we should should tremble at the idea of having much and not fearing the Lord. Better to be content with little and know and follow God. The meek shall inherit the earth. Don't think for one second that following Christ will in the end be some losing deal. No. Pursue Christ. The fourth principle here in verse 10. Pride rejects wise counsel and causes strife. Pride rejects wise counsel and causes strife. And I think just as righteousness and wickedness is a reminder of those in various financial situations in the world, so is the need to not live with disrespect and rudeness, but instead to be open to wise and sound counsel in life, both the rich and the poor. The context, I think, continues to inform verse 10. By insolence. What does the word insolent mean? Well, insolence means behavior that's disrespectful. Or rude. To be an insolent person is to behave with others with an attitude or words or actions that are rude and disrespectful. An attitude that views your own words, actions, and opinions as superior. So that if someone else has different counsel or wisdom to offer, it's a refusal of that. There's a response of disrespect and And uh, in rudeness, I think we can say specifically that insolence is the response here of the fool to advice. Insolence is the response of the fool to advice. And the reason I want to tailor the first part of this phrase dealing with getting advice or wisdom is because that's where the verse goes. Did you see the end of verse 10? But with those who take advice, 
is wisdom. So the people who take advice, and they don't mean just from anybody in the world. They're talking about those who fear God, who love God's word, who give sound counsel and wisdom. Hearing them is a good idea. Listening to their counsel and being open to their wisdom is good. We don't always know what we should do. So with those who take advice, that is wise. That's wise. Taking advice from people who know and fear God and love the word of God and want you to walk in righteousness and listening to them can save us from all manner of foolish decisions. So with those who take advice is wisdom. That's a humbling situation because to take advice is to say by implication, I don't know everything. So I need some information. Here's my situation. Here's what's going on. What do you think? Can you look at it with me? What angles am I not seeing? What blind spots do you notice? And on and on. So this this posture here is one of humility, but not the first half of the verse. Someone who's responding with disrespect and with rudeness and causing nothing but strife. This is not a humble posture. This is pride doing what pride does. Puffing up oneself and harming relationships with others. By insolence comes nothing but strife. We long to have our lives filled with less strife. No one's saying, you know what I'd like more of. You know, this year in 2022, before it's out, you know what I'd like to see an increase in? No one's wanting more strife. We make efforts and have strategies and try to figure out how we can have less strife. Now, sometimes we can be our own worst enemy where we can cause a lot more strife by our own silliness and carelessness or foolishness than we realize or even care to acknowledge. But the truth of the proverb here is that our insolence, our attitude and words about life affects our relationships with others and causes strife. In fact, it's such a strong statement that he says it causes nothing but strife. That's a way of saying, don't don't try to figure out whether there is some kind of gain on the perimeter that you can notice. Well, at least this happened. He says, no, no, no. Think of it in an all or nothing sense here. What does your insolence bring you? Strife. Why would you want that? But the way of humility is a way of wisdom. Not foolishness. Those who take advice, wisdom. Strife causes Quarreling and tensions and conflicts. And we don't want more of that in our lives. So God help us to walk humbly. Because that's not what comes naturally to the human nature. It tells us in Proverbs eleven fourteen, Where there is no guidance of people falls. In an abundance of counselors there's safety. It's to reckon well with reality. To say to our souls. I do not know everything. I don't know everything I need to know about the things I think I know. I need wisdom. Which means I need a community of others that I can walk with as I follow God. So that we can walk wisely as pilgrims together toward a celestial city. And I'm just going to walk humbly because what is pride and insolence got me? Strife for one thing. Let's have less of that. It is... Very likely that the rich in the ancient world would have a very insolent attitude toward others. Think of the kind of posture that the wealthy can be stereotyped to have. A kind of snobbery and pretentiousness where someone might look at their bank account and resources and think, I have everything, I'm untouchable. What do I need anything from them for? I've got everything. An attitude of self-sufficiency. 
Now, friends, when this language about, you know, rich and poor are used in our 21st century context, it is easy for us to think of someone of some kind of superior financial status to automatically think those would be the rich that the book is talking about. So not, not us. But you and I, with some degree of income and technology and plumbing and power and air conditioning, with vehicles and walled homes, and you can just keep going and keep going, you realize all of a sudden the evidence is pointing that we are more toward the rich side than the poor. And that when, a, not a majority, but when a huge swaths of people throughout the world live on just a few dollars a day, we can realize we are wrong to exempt ourselves from the finger of Scripture and its wisdom that indicts the rich in order to excuse ourselves to fall into some other category. No, the Bible is talking to us. The Scripture is addressing us. By insolence comes nothing but strife. But with those who take advice is wisdom. So no matter what we possess, no matter what we will earn and save, no matter what we've been called to steward and how we have been called to bless and to be generous, none of us are self-sufficient at the core. We are called to connect and to relate and to depend, to bless and to, uh, and, and to be a blessing. To be blessed and be a blessing. Self-sufficiency belongs to an attitude of insolence. May that attitude not belong with us. The last principle that addresses walking as a disciple of God in the world full of possessions and money. It says in verse 11, wealth gained hastily will dwindle. But whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Now, I wonder if this kind of proverb would make any sense to the culture around us. How would others imagine this verse be written? Maybe they would suggest rewriting it like the following. Wealth gained hastily is a great idea. But whoever gathers little by little, they'll never get rich. The culture might rewrite the proverb like that. That's not the way the proverb reads. So think for a second about why it would say wealth gained hastily will dwindle. But whoever gathers little by little will increase it. So in our culture, we might think a sudden full-on infusion of wealth would be a wonderful idea. This is why the culture is so pervasive with get-rich-quick schemes. Schemes all over the place. Let me tell you how you can make $50,000 a week. And, you know, you have all of these promises about get this and sell this and be a part of this. These get rich because they pull at the desire of people to have much quickly. Wealth gained hastily, the proverb says. Ah, our ears should perk up. Wait a second. That sounds like the air we breathe in our culture right now. And it says here it will dwindle. Wait, why would that be the case? Let me give you a few examples of some, uh, some cultural facts and phenomenon about wealth. In 2009, Sports Illustrated spoke of NBA players in retirement. Now, if you're in the NBA, you're making a lot of money, but I was stunned to read the following statistic. 
that within five years of retirement, the majority of NBA players had completely run out of money. Think of the NFL. The NFL, almost 80% of NFL retired players were bankrupt or in financial distress within two years. This is one of the big appeals about the lottery. Oh, if I could only play this, scratch this number, turn in this ticket, guess those numbers right, I would get a vast infusion of wealth. Except, statistically... 70% of people who get an increase or some sort of jackpot have spent every dime of it within a few years. You think of millions of dollars? Millions and in some cases tens and tens of millions. One man named Abraham was murdered in 2009 after he won a $30 million jackpot. Murdered by a man in Florida who shot him in the chest. It is the case that a huge percentage of people who think an influx of wealth right now would be great, and then they get that. It creates an instability in their lives that in a matter of years has just undone them. Statistics and anecdotes demonstrate over and over again that a huge influx of wealth will often lead to reckless purchases and gambling often lead to the ending of friendships and the new suspicious relationships that can come out of the woodwork. It causes strife within child-parent relationships, an increase in divorce and suicide. So you might think to yourself, oh, you know what would solve my problems if I just had a lot and right now? But that's not the wisdom of Scripture. In fact, the proverb says in verse 11, wealth gained hastily will dwindle. One person dealing with financial stewardship and economic matters, he says, if you run a marathon without any training, you could expect to injure your body. Perhaps severely. In the same way, he says, the muscle around building wealth needs training. So the proverb says, in verse 11, whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Being faithful with little. Not being discontent with little and having just an imagination that what I want is a lot and right now as quickly as possible. But rather viewing your life, living for the fear of the Lord and glory of God to manage and to be faithful with what you have that little by little you may increase it. And this proverb has different parallels. You could give an example from Proverbs 12, 11, which says the one who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. Whoever works his land, that's the picture of diligent, faithful work. They don't come out to their land once a year. I probably ought to tend to that thing. No. In fact, to work the land is to give oneself to faithful, plodding work. Chapter 20, verse 21 says, an inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Oh, what about Proverbs 28, 22? A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. Now, how do the Proverbs see so clearly into the human condition? What do they know about us? 
They know that those whose goal is to get as much as they can, as fast as they can, for as long as they can, are servants of money. And that kind of sin will destroy you. And we're not the exception to the Bible's wisdom. We wouldn't say, oh, you know, maybe for, maybe for other people. But if it happened to me, oh, it would just be so different. We should not just walk around presuming we're the exception to the wisdom the Bible offers. Instead, we should say the wisdom of the Scripture speaks to my heart. And God knows my heart better than I know me. So what I need to do is to commit to doing honest, faithful work over the long haul. And trust the Lord. Rather than falling into get-rich-quick schemes... Or failing to love neighbor because opportunities to exploit and manipulate and use and abuse come along. We will be tempted, it tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, not to love money. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. People chase full on after what they love, friends, don't you know? So I wonder what you're hotly pursuing. I wonder what you're giving yourself to. Don't give yourself to what won't matter in a few decades. Give your heart and serve with all your might what is eternally relevant. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Oh, what a promise. Oh, if we would only believe God. If we would only trust what he says. If we would only know his commitment to our good. If we would only trust day by day as we work. And as we engage with integrity and faithfulness and honesty. If we would just trust the providing hand of the Lord. Help us not to love money. It says in 1 Timothy 6.17. As for the rich, charge them not to be haughty. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Why should we trust Him? Why is it such good news that your hope in God will not be in vain? And your love with all your might of God will not be some end time disappointment. Why is that what our heart is directed to do? Because Psalm 24.1 says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We trust God who lacks nothing. We should follow Him, serving Him, not seeking to love God and money. Seeking to do both will end up with us loving money. So help us then to love God. We should plead daily even for the Lord to orient and order the loves of our hearts. Because we want to be wise. You have nothing to fear. He will not leave you or forsake you. You will not be forsaken. The light of the righteous rejoices. Let's pray.